All right, everyone. So now we're back for another great episode of the EUVZ podcast. And we're here with two of what has come to be very good friends in the industry because we've got in friends of the podcast. It's, of course, Joe Shorts, who you know uh, from Icemer Cavalier. I think he probably holds the title maybe together with Chris of the one who's been most on the podcast. And then we also have Fred, who has been a, uh, I would say, recent very often showcased friend of the pod because he was on first during the summer to tell us everything about Stride because we had not yet covered Stride on the pod. And then he came on for a more in-depth fireside chat with David just a couple of weeks ago. And lo and behold, two days after that recording was, was, was done, Fred announced that he was pulling out of venture or at least putting it on pause. So Following that, of course, we got a bunch of inbound questions from everyone asking us, do we know, do we think, blah, blah, blah. So we thought we did know some because, of course, we had spoken to Fred, but we didn't want to do any conjecture (laughs) more than everyone already did. So we wanted to put together this conversation and recognizing that this is a very special situation where someone actually talks on the way out of the market. We invited Joe to lead this conversation because we think that Joe can actually speak to this at a much better level than David and I. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This this is a union of values, values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings. Let's start acting, 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 acting. This show is not investment advice, and the hosts of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured. Thank you, Andreas, and good morning, Fred. It's really nice to talk with you today. Um, as we were saying, when people enter the market, uh, we talk a lot about it. A new thesis, a new idea. Uh, someone's analysis of the market and why they're doing what they're doing. But it's very rare that someone takes a pause like this um, with, with equal deep thinking about the market. You're an important investor. A lot of us look up to you. And so your thoughts are, are important to, to me and to many people across the ecosystem. And I can tell you that since your announcement, a lot of people, as you, as you go to conferences and you know, meet people in the course of work, a lot of people are saying, what, what about Fred? You know, what are you thinking? What do you know? What is he, what's really behind his idea? It's had, a, it's had an effect on a lot of people. Um, all of us who do what we do, uh, the market's changing. And so your thoughts on that are, matter a lot to us. So, you know, it's great to have some more time with you today to say, take us through in your own words, what, what's really driving this decision of yours to pause? Uh, thank you, Joe. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And, you know, you've been one of the more uh, consistent and sophisticated LPs in the market. So very, um, a very big thank you for helping us structure European venture. Um, so I'll start with there is a first bookend and a final bookend. The first bookend was a, a walk in the Pyrenees that I did a couple of years ago. Let me start with that little story. So I decided to go out, I just felt cold to go out in the mountains for 10 days solo. And I took no books, no music, no journal, purely my, my tarp and, my, and a little bit of gear. 
about 12 kilos on my back. And it's amusing how absolutely terrifying that sounded at first, both to me and to everybody else. It was like, oh my God, you're going to go in the mountains with nothing to do. And it, which is exactly what I did. You know, I ended up spending hours and hours on end just contemplating the mountain and the birds. And, um, and I think after day two, my internal chatter started to drop. And I, I got into this place of complete quiet uh, to the point that you notice a butterfly taking off sort of 20 meters to your right. And it sort of culminated as I made my way up to the 3000s, to the Cirque de Gavarnie. I remember very clearly what I would call the blade of grass moment. So you're, you're sort of sitting there in the mountain doing absolutely nothing. And suddenly you realize that this blade of grass in front of you contains everything that happened in the past, everything that happened in the future, and sort of this moment when you realize, you know, how both you are everything inside yourself and you're also nothing at the scale of the universe. And of course, there's nothing like the mountains to kind of bring that up in you. And that really started a journey of personal interrogation, you know, when you think about your mortality, meaning of life, etc. And that kind of culminated. So the second bookend would be the October 7th attack, I think were, were kind of a big deal for me. Um, in terms of triggering a more, a slightly more profound interrogation of, of what I was doing, and you know what, what was my contribution, and and how was I part of the system? And so I think I've spoken a little bit about this on LinkedIn, but you know when you look at the crisis, conflicts, and also the the role of technology, um, it was somewhat difficult for me to sit there and think that my best contribution was going to be to raise another fund and fund the next 25 companies, or at least in its current incarnation. I think, you know, technology has had a very ambiguous role. Uh, I'm not a techno-utopian. Uh, I think we have to think uh, very profoundly after about our impact on the system. And at Stride, we had put this layer on top of what we do called intentional venture, which was our, our, our version of ESG, if you like, do do companies have intention? Do founders have intention? Uh, do we have alignment of, of incentives in a way that we like? Uh, do we understand who we're disrupting second and first and second order effects? But you know, that that kind of didn't feel enough. So I think that was the core. Uh, secondarily, I was trying to think about what's the definition of success. And I think we we spend most of our lives comparing ourselves to other people when it's sort of a deep source of unhappiness because really the race we're racing is only our own race. And so on what terms do I define my own success? In venture, it's always, can you raise the next fund? Can you raise a bigger fund? But you know, who defined those rules? And when I looked inside myself, it really, where I get the most energy and joy is in what I call the craft, the craft of working with founders and building companies as well as investing. Um, but not so much, you know, kind of had nothing to do with whether my funds are 100 million or 500 million. So that was part of the decision making. Another piece was, which I think a lot of emerging GPs um, or more experienced GPs will know about, is that there is no off-ramp in venture capital. It's like when you're successful, you get the rights the, the, the to raise the next fund and then the fund after that. And sort of the treadmill never stops. And so as a founding GP, it's almost the more you build, the more you carry. And so in a bizarre way, I viewed uh, pausing or opting out as a kind of my own act of dissent. You know, it's like an act of freedom. Um, and then one thing that was tough for me was a little bit of boredom creeping in. And I think it, it raised the question of when you know the game so well, 
you, do you keep playing the same game or do you go learn another game? And to that, really, I have no answer at the moment. I mean, it's possible we raise another fund. It's, it's possible we don't. And I think I'm kind of trying to be in a space of discovery and emergence and thinking. So I was look, trying to bring all these things together and, and really looking at my own motivation. And, you know, we know motivation once you get past fame, money, power, which are important but not very sustainable, you get into the internal motivation side, which is the mastery of your craft, autonomy and, and purpose. And just trying to sit with that and see what in my next iteration, you know, what does that stack look like for me? And I like thinking, writing, using my creativity. I love working with teams. You know, when you marry the human element and the strategy part, um, and in fact, one of the only things I committed to myself is next year, I'm going to do a big uh, coaching course with a, a holistic coaching uh, outfit called New, New Ventures West. And that's really, you know, to add another, um, uh, another piece of learning to what, I've, to what I've acquired today in terms of skills. So I think at a fundamental level, there was a little bit also a question of, do I still feel fully alive? I think a lot of men especially uh, women too, but men in, in particular, I noticed struggle with exhaustion. Uh, and, you know, I felt my light was a little bit dimmed and so kind of sat with it and said, all right, I need to change the system. What's next, I don't know, but at least let me, <laughs> let me just put a stake in the ground. Well, that, that's an amazing story uh, on, on so many levels. There's a lot to unpack there. But, you know, what you're, what you're really describing is this very personal choice. And, and particularly, I, I hear you loud and clear, stepping out of the noise for a moment, um, because our market is noisy, our jobs are noisy, there's so much complexity in supporting the portfolio, which gets bigger every, <laughs> every time you do a new deal. So I understand that, and again, it's very uncommon. Most people are on some kind of treadmill. And it's just uh, you, you spend all the time you can throw at it um, supporting and helping. So it's rare we have anybody in the market with this, with this kind of in introspection. So I can picture you sitting on the mountain looking at the braided grass and I'm, and I'm picturing kind of this what's it all about moment. Is that, is that a fair, um, not, nothing to do with the funds, the firm, the market, this is really all about Fred and what am I doing right now? Is that, is that a fair summary? Uh, yes, I think that is absolutely fundamentally where it comes from. And, you know, if you started doing personal work, so people have done conscious work, let's call it without sounding too grand, know exactly what I'm talking about. It's really interesting that when I interact with people who've gone down the path of self-exploration, they, they get it immediately. I think, you know, factors like, the markets being tougher and, you know, uh, elements that are specific to stride come into the mix, you know, because, of course, it's not uh, it's not some kind of binary. But that that is really the source of the interrogation, for sure. As you say, there's no offering. Um, this isn't a treadmill. You can just step aside and it keeps spinning, you know, and people in your portfolio will keep calling. They need you. So it's uh, yeah, it's a, it's a tough thing to do. But. Look, that's all. That's all great and important. We can we can unpack more of that. But a lot of what people have been asking me in the market are, okay, let's let's talk turkey here. Have you just not raised a new fund? Have you just not kept the team together? Because most people running firms, that is the you know they look to the next milestone, and and the only thing that would stop them is not achieving that milestone. 
Sounds like that's not what you're saying, but can you can you answer that question direct? Because that's the one I hear coming up a lot. For sure, and you know, I think that's a very legit uh, interrogation. So, I mean, first of all, let me say I'm a marathon runner. I can take pain. You know, I can take a lot of pain. When we raised Fund One, we talked to Harry and I spoke to 800 investors, but over a thousand meetings. I mean, I've been through tough fundraisers and I've been through three crises. Now, to, to answer that question specifically, um, I actually looked at my CRM because what's interesting is in the process, when I started explaining the strategy for Fund 3 to people, your one I found is my heart was not really in it, which was definitely part of, part of the thinking. And I actually looked at our CRM to answer your question in a very factual manner. So here's exactly what the stats look like. So I started really talking to investors in um, mid-September and starting with my existing ones. And I only reached out to my 12 largest. So of my 12 largest, I had three firm yeses, which were immediate, one firm yes, but subject to their own funding. I had four a leaning in probable yes, had to do re-underwriting work, but were, were sort of indicating they were coming in. So that's seven. Two, I have no clue because they were late in the process and we <laughs> didn't really, uh, don't know where they stood. And then I had, out of the 12, three probable no's. Uh, one was very um, focused on DPI, which, we, which uh, you know, we have a limited amount of in Fund 1. And two had a change of strategy where Fund of Funds was not part of what they were doing going forward. So of my ATLPs, that's as much as I knew, but I, I actually felt uh, very comforted by, by that. There was probably more than half the fund that was either a firm yes or a leaning in yes. Um, for the rest... It was very early, so I had about 20 people engage in a first conversation. And of course, we, we maintain relationships on an ongoing basis, but I would say 20 people engage in first, first conversation around Fund 3. And of those 20, I had one no so far. And the no that came back was uh, described by the person as a very hard decision and an edge decision that was primarily based on team stability uh, and, you know, other opportunities they were looking at. So at the moment, I really don't know if I could have raised Fund 3, but I think that the data that I had, which is quite limited, was pretty good. Like, I felt quite quite confident that we could raise Fund 3. It was extremely early in the process. We're literally three or four weeks into it, uh, and the, the signs were good. Um, now, I can't, can't tell you where we would have landed, but it felt pretty good. Also, maybe contrary to popular belief, there's actually a lot of inbound on European venture, and so we had some names I'd never heard of, sort of smaller U.S. endowments, some very large family offices, which came out of the blue. And part of what they're trying to do is there's a shift of money towards European venture, which I think will come the next 12 to 24 months. And they saw us as a viable way to get some U.K. seed exposure. So actually, it was almost surprising the, the amount of inbound we had. So that's as much as I know on the fundraising side. You know, Fred, that's that's really interesting, and it's exactly uh, if I would run the statistics on our own fundraising, I think it would play out in a very similar way. And what you're describing is is where we are in the cycle, in in, in my opinion. We're we're also uh, raising our fund three, and it's very similar. So, and it's more about where the LPs are. You know, they put out a lot of money in 2021, so some of them are simply saying, "Hey, I'm." I'm planning to be there, but I don't know when and I don't know how much. And so, so to me, what you're describing is what 
what certainly we're seeing in our own LP base and probably most. So no, no change there. And I think I heard earlier, maybe this is interesting to point out to the market. I think you heard earlier, this is firmly a pause. There could be another strides fund, but we're just saying not, not for the moment. Is that, is that also a fair statement? Yeah. So I think, look, this is where LP responsibility comes in. So first of all, and I feel quite a deep sense of responsibility. I mean, you know, to a hundred million fund, 120 million fund for me is a meaningful amount of money, 40 plus projects. I mean, I, I don't take this lightly at all. And I think that if we come back to market, it has to be, uh, first of all, with the confidence that we've managed the existing assets really well. And secondly, with a strategy that I can get behind and where I'm, which I'm fully in. Because I think it's it's not a question of, you know, amassing fees and getting wealthy. It's also just the deep sense of responsibility that I feel towards our LP base. And I've always said, you know, we're always extremely transparent with our LPs. If I can't make money for you, don't give me any. You know, it's a it's a privileged enough position that you got to go full on your own sword if you can't deliver the goods. Yeah. Well, that's that's a very important point. You may say that you're pausing on fundraise, but you have these two portfolios that, uh, and you, a lot of people who gave you money to, to build something exciting, and that very much needs active management for years to come. Right? Agreed. I know how people in the market have reacted to the story and the questions they've been asking me, but what reaction have you been getting? Why do you think, at least from my point of view, the story's triggered a lot of people, maybe to think about their own process, their own you know, next few years and so on. What what sort of reaction have, have you had so far? So you know, the reaction to the blog post itself was extremely positive. Um, but at the same time, I know that that's, of course, what I'm seeing sort of the tip of the iceberg. I can tell you that from the LP side, so existing and prospective or just people who know me, that response has been overwhelmingly positive and really uh, strikingly so. I think people are you know, there's, there's been a frenetic pace. Uh, everybody realizes it's difficult to be in, you know, you end up in multiple funds from the same family inside your same fund. I mean, it's, everybody's a little bit exhausted. And I think people thought, well, great, take a breather, manage your portfolio well. That's been overwhelmingly positive. There was some, you know, I think in the sifted um, article, some speculation around Kazoo. People took Kazoo really well. You know, look, would I back Alex Chesterman again tomorrow? I mean, one of Europe's most successful entrepreneurs with a beautiful story with Zoopla. Of course, it was a check I would write. And secondly, you know, we can talk about the Kazoo mistakes, but I mean, is it is it a venture bet you should make? Sure. Do people understand that sometimes come? I mean, this one was quite a spectacular flame out, but, you know, does that reflect on us in a poor way? I, I don't think so. I mean, I think we managed it as professionally as we could. And so I think LPs are grown-ups, they're experienced, you know, they, they get it. There's a set of responses which was quite interesting, which is there's almost like a how dare you, you know? So I found some people were quite triggered. And immediately their assumption is, oh, you, you failed, you can't raise, or there's something else going on that we don't see. And I think as usual, when somebody gets triggered, most of the time it's a reflection of what's inside of you. And it's almost like stepping out of the system is a kind of an act of betrayal to what the, the prevailing narrative why, is. Why are you leaving the party? You know, it was so hard to get in here. How, how dare you, you know, in a way. And, and you're, I, I totally agree. It reflects on, on me. Like the 
because I'm here. I'm staying. I'm, I'm still on the treadmill. Uh, why are you leaving that treadmill? And, you know, what I really appreciate about you talking about it in public is there are many people thinking in the way you're thinking, but they'll never say it out loud. Uh, they might say it after a couple of beers, you know, in that quiet moment uh, with, with very trusted parties, but got to give you a lot of credit for putting it out there, letting us all have a discussion around it and, and, and think about it. I mean, I think I heard you say about Kazoo, by the way, that you were you were the very early money. Um, and, and that was the bet you made. What what came later with SPAC and so on, I don't know how influential the early stage investors were at that point. I mean, my initial thinking was we can nail the UK. Uh, it's a big market. We can probably, we could have built a five to seven billion pound company in the UK, just, just running reasonable stats on that. And it was quite a contained problem. When the growth investors came in, you know, there was this dream of building a pan-European fabric. And it's almost like in everybody's mindset, oh, let's build a 20 billion pound company. You know, it was kind of shifted the, the bar completely. And, you know, when you have the world's best SPAC knocking at your door, I mean, this was the SPAC started by Dan Ock with Kevin Systrom, with Andrew Jitschke. I mean, this Ajax SPAC was like literally the best vehicle on the planet. You know, I think everybody started playing that game. So the mistakes made here were going public way too fast, for sure. This was a company that was three years old, wasn't ready for public markets. You know, building the pan-European fabric may have worked, but it was predicated on sort of infinite supply of capital or at least another couple of billion or something. And then taking on the debt. You know, I think for a public company to take on such a large convertible with the Viking syndicate, was was uh, was really tough because now you have this huge, you know, six hundred and thirty million dollars worth of debt sitting on top of the capital structure. Then remember, we also had that DMGT take private. So when the Daily Mail Group went private, they actually shifted all their holdings to the retail investors as part of the deal. So they created an absolutely huge stock overhang. Not that we had that much liquidity to start with. So you sort of had this combination of events, which made it, you know, unbelievably tough. I mean, the stock was could have recovered, but it was like fitting through the eye of a needle. So, you know, you look at this compound set of problems and you end up with, you know, with the kind of value destruction we've seen on, on the stock. And again, I think the underlying company may yet surprise people operationally. But of course, as a, as a shareholder in the public equity, it doesn't really help much, does it? And everyone forgets during this moment in the capital markets that you're describing, all of the various movements, a lot of the European growth was by acquisition. And that is not easy, right? Go go and acquire a company and somehow bolt it on and make it live the brand and all of that. I guess that had to be really tough. I guess that's also something Alex Jessen was very good at from his Zupla days, but but that can't be easy. The, my, my operational experience in buying companies and integrating them takes years, actually, to do that well. Look, first of all, let's just say I'm... We assembled the most exceptional e-commerce team I've ever seen in the UK. I mean, it was just an incredible cast of characters. People worked hard and who worked well. They for sure needed probably two years and another billion to be able to execute on that integration. And, you know, that money was not, was not coming. Now, you know, do you look back and say, was it too much too fast? Sure. It's a flight of Icarus. 
And, you know, uh, that's, there's no shying away from that. And, you know, let, let's hope we all learn the lessons of building sustainable companies over the long term. Sorry, I took us off of the, the, the narratives you're hearing and, and thinking about that. Uh, back, back to Kazoo, but it's a fascinating story. We'll be studying it for years to come. One thing that surprised me about this moment in the cycle, uh, you, you spoke about the challenges of the market. It's changed a lot in the past 12, 18 months. But the surprising part for me is new firms are coming together at a very similar pace. They were coming together two years ago. You know, the number of new teams we're meeting, you know, I'm an angel going pro, I'm spinning out of a bigger firm. That just keeps going, which surprises me. I would have thought at this moment, given all the difficulties fundraising, uh, that there would be fewer kind of new, new VC funds launching. We're not seeing a slowdown in that least not yet. What are your thoughts on that? Are, are people entering? There's one point of view that, well, prices are down. This is a great moment to enter and do more. Uh, but there's another thought that actually uh, there's a big group of companies there that need support and follow-on money. Why are we creating more and more early stage? As somebody who's been around longer than most, what, what are your thoughts on, on this new activity? Look, my general, my first comment would be you have to know exactly why you exist and be precise, I mean, surgically precise about how you create value. Uh, if you only have a vague idea, you probably uh, are in for a rude awakening. When I look at Max at Nucleus Capital, uh, who's doing synthetic biology with a great group, or I look at Amino Collective, or I look at firms like that, I'm like, I understand exactly why they exist. I understand the risk you're buying as an LP. I'm a little bit, for sure, concerned about too many undifferentiated firms at the seed stage. And the question there is, are you at seed because you can't raise a bigger fund or you're at seed because you're fundamentally a seed animal and there's something unique that you can, that you can deliver? If you look, for example, at myself and Harry, so Harry, under his 20VC incarnation, brings you the best network in the world. He has an unbelievable network, plus the media property. He's not going to do active work in the way I do it with, with the companies, but that's a very clear point of value add, and you know why you're inviting him in syndicates. If you take me, we're, or me and Gabby, we're about deep company building. We go in the weeds, and, and we know how to do it well, and we're natural seed animals. And then to limit our space of complexity, you know, we only invest in humans, so we don't do energy, we don't do climate, and we're trying to be the best seed fund in the UK as an aspirational goal. So I know why I exist in the world and I know, I know what we do. So I think it's more like an existential question of like, what is it? Why do I deserve to exist? What is it that I bring to the party? And of course, what's my value creation strategy? And I've definitely come across a number of funds where it's not exactly clear how they're going to outperform. And as we know, this is a game of top quartile. And yeah, I'm slightly nervous that this Cambrian explosion is leading to too much undifferentiated seed capital for sure. It's funny to hear because you could say the exact same thing five years ago, the exact same thing 10 years ago. The, the way I describe it is uh, why does the world need another fund? You know, if, if you have a good answer to that, then let's talk. Um, but if you're just answering, I'd like to have a fund or I'm just another one, that never worked. So that to me, that isn't any different. Um, I mean, full disclosure, we, we invested with Manuel at Amino Collective and for the reasons you described, he's doing something really different and really something we don't 
understand. And so we need a we need a partner like that. So yeah, we, we got excited about that as well. Um, so let's see. The, you know, this you're taking us back to the introspection, to the why am I doing this and what am I adding to the system, which I think is a good. Those of us who've been around a while ought to do it, but actually those of us thinking to enter the market uh, really need to do it. And and that takes us maybe back to the, you know, being the good good VC to your founders. You know, are you seeing that role changing at all right now? I guess there's more difficult situations, more maybe more crisis moments, more struggle to fundraise. Um, what's happening on that side? Yeah, I think, look, I, I think venture capital, or being a venture capitalist is an interesting role. And there is, um, you kind of have to hold very different polarities. So, for example, you could say, well, I believe in you, dear founder, until I don't. Um, I'm your friend, your buddy, your counselor, but I'm also your investor. And on rare occasions, I may have to fire you. I take the leap of faith in your business, but I run a portfolio and inherently I'm going to have to make choices. I'm in the room with you, God knows how much value I'm contributing, but I may end up on the Midas list whilst you're doing the work of building, which I know is very triggering to a number of founders for good reason. And so the core question is, you know, can you hold that ambiguity and then stay connected to the founders and the journey that he or she is on? And can you, can you manage that in your own mind? And so it goes back to trust, truth and transparency. I think founders are not stupid. They understand the game we play. The problem is for many VCs is they can't quite hold that. And so they oscillate between what one role, your know, one stance and the other. You know, I, I, I'm backing you and then suddenly I don't. And you know, very surprising to founders. And I think to answer your question more directly, we go back to this thing is, as a VC, do you know what you're only good at? Because my view is, Look, we do the picking. Once we've done the picking, there's only, there's only two things that matter, which is can you help reduce the risk across your portfolio? And then can you help build better companies? I mean, there's the only two things that really are important and whatever your contribution is to those two, to those two dimensions. And so I think especially if you're a young VC, you kind of say, well, okay, I have my unique set of capabilities. Maybe at the beginning, I'm going to be the best at go-to-market or I'm going to be the best at talking to technical founders or whatever it may be. And then over time, as you as you gain more experience, you kind of flesh out these capabilities so you can be a 360 player. So you can go from everything to deep diving with on the engineering organization all the way to helping with an exit transaction. And hopefully you can cover the gamut. So if you look at me, for example, I've decided, hey, I would love to add, add coaching training because even though I've been in this for 23 years, I'm like, there's still stuff I need to learn. I'm sometimes a little bit too action-oriented and directive. I'm like, I want to learn to create more space uh, for teams to uh, to blossom on their own. So going to do coaching training. And I think it's a it's an ongoing path, but it goes back to self-awareness, you know, what it is that you what it is that you bring to the table. And I guess an important part of that is knowing when to get out of the way as well. All about impact versus busy. If you're making the founders more busy, but it has no impact, you're wasting your time. And if your ego is in the room, instead of a calm assessment of whether of what's required or what's needed for the company, then you need to check yourself at the door. And you know, it's it takes it takes self awareness and a little bit of humility, which is a skill that <laughs> I think a quality that's lacking a little bit in VC, 
Uh, so, are not famous for their humility, if I can say it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, there's some built-in reasons why egos develop and blossom in venture because everybody flatters you all the time. But you know, again, it's our job to go to go to go check our check our ego at the door. You know, in crisis, I think what's particularly important is number one, the most valuable resource we have is founder energy. And you know, if you back founders, you back founders, and then you're helping them build. So question number one is: Are you adding or detracting? If a board meeting becomes a source of pain distraction and 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 you know loss of uh, loss of enthusiasm then you're not doing your job right secondly it's the decisions are harder to take the, the job of a founder is to make decisions in conditions of uncertainty and so it's like are you powering that up are you making are you creating the conditions under which we can make the right decisions or the opposite and one of the things i noticed with venture capitalists is as the going gets tough, they start to bring their fear or their anxiety into the boardroom instead of you know, managing it inside themselves. And, and that could be quite damaging. So are you seeing or have you seen over the last year or so lots of boards getting into that gridlock of you know the, the, the cut the burn agenda versus the growth agenda? Uh, are boards getting more dysfunctional or, or is, that, is that not the case? I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit on the outside of that. Well, first of all, you know, that growth versus burn debate is really one of the more complex in venture because it's, uh, you know, it's a very fine exercise of allowing a company to continue to execute on the plan on a funding path that's credible. And this is non-trivial. You can't have an ideological position around that stuff. And so I've definitely seen as people get more stressed and we're operating with fewer resources and outcomes can be poor. Uh, that you see investor misalignment set in. And it kind of creeps in gradually. So there's like a loss of trust or faith in the founder that's not expressed. And then it comes out through the edge by an over-focus, for example, on financial plans. And so you definitely see uh, boards getting a little bit more tense. And you know you also have to throw in partnership pressures. Some people might be at risk inside their own partnership. Uh, and you know I've I've been in the room when people talk very negatively about existing companies, including some that became great. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's a sort of disaffection at the partnership level, which then trickles down to, to what the board dynamics are. So I think for me, almost sometimes you, you find, first of all, recreating investor alignment is very important. And we have to ground investor alignment in the truth of the company rather than some kind of idealized version of where people think the company should be. Very often, there's a disconnect between what's operationally possible and what investors are asking for, which is a major source of why founders get very disaffected with VCs, which is, hey, I can't go 3x if I have to cut my burn by half. And you're asking me to let go of half of my engineering team. Like, what are you talking about? Which is, which is you know, I have a lot of sympathy for it. So for me as an investor, and maybe as a slightly having seen a lot of cases, recreating investor alignment is important. If it doesn't work, at the very least, I can shield founders. And I don't mean shield them from the truth of what they need to do, but shield them from the, the disruption. And then sometimes, you know, you have to have the courage to be disliked. Because, I mean, people on occasion get out of line and you just kind of have to step in. And, you know, there's this kind of, 
notion that as investors, we're always in the same boat and we have to treat each other beautifully, respectfully, but then you don't treat the founder with respect and on occasion kind of have to step in. And I, I've had to take people aside and go like, hey, you really can't show up that way in the board meeting, which is, of course, terribly patronizing, but also probably the right thing to do, you know? Oh, that that's a tough one to manage on all levels, because if you're really investing with your own conviction, by definition, you're not always going to agree. You will create conflict and therefore, you know, managing that. And you said earlier, creating the space to manage that and leaving your own junk at the door. That's very hard. That takes experience. Most of us uh, do it a percentage of the time and not enough, probably. Disagreement and conflict don't need to go hand in hand. Um, that's tough, though, right? And, and the, the more the, high, the stakes get high, the more people dig into their positions. And, you know, it, it's hard to get across the bridge to say, I hear you. I completely disagree with you. But we have to take a decision here. You know, it's, um, this is true. I mean, you, the more you know about your own biases, the more you know about yourself, the more you're able to identify biases in others. And so you'll find every flavor of some VCs going native on a company and some VCs going, you know, going the opposite way. And neither positions in a way have anything to do with where the company's at. And so I think the more you're able to identify when these biases or over-reliance on pattern recognition or, you know, you, you kind of want to go back to facts and the truth and at least establish a basis of discussion that's a lot more, um, that's a lot closer to reality. There is such, such a thing. And you find very often that you have debates about language or you know, there's so much misunderstanding. So I certainly think at least part of my role is to try and frame discussions in the right way and then bring us back to the, to the, to the ground and to the basics of what a company has on hand and how they're able to operate so that at least we have sort of this level playing field in the decision-making. Because people come into boards, boards are short, you know, you get right into conflict, information's partial, people haven't consumed the information, it, gets, it, can get pretty, uh, it can get pretty hairy, for sure. Well, Fred, I don't know where you're going on your coaching journey, but, but as you talk, it makes me really think there's a role in the market for Fred coaching the next generation. Um, I don't know if we can ever get that together, but just as you... Wouldn't it be great to have a room full of uh, VCs who haven't been around so long? Because what I hear, what I hear you saying again and again is know yourself, and that takes that creating that quiet space. And uh, I don't know if it's up a mountain or in nature or in a different way, but I, I hear you loud and clear, and it's a it's a good thought for everyone across our market, particularly as we go into twenty four. Um, any, any thoughts? This is the end of the year where we recap, you know, <laughs> what's gone on this year, what's coming next year. What are, what are you thinking about 24? Net up, net down, stable building? What, what do you think? Well, let me say, I think there is, first of all, there is a task on hand for GPs, which is to ensure that they maintain the trust of their LPs. Um, I have seen, and I've heard this feedback many times now that, LPs don't trust where the portfolios are marked. They're not sure they're getting the full story. Um, so it's, you know, this is not a good conducive environment to us building the kind of ecosystem that we need. And I think it's important for everybody to be able to take stock of where the market's at in a, in a very grounded way. My personal view on 2024 
is that there is a lot more pain to crystallize within the portfolios, just back to the comment I just, I just said. And, you know, this is, again, where I think our responsibility is to bring that knowledge forward so that we know what we're dealing with. LPs are not idiots. You know, if you've had companies that have raised large rounds at inflated valuations, and at the time it looked like you were doing great, they're fully expecting these markdowns and these, these recaps to happen. So why don't we try and align ourselves the same way we do with our founders, with our LPs and with the rest of the ecosystem. So we're like, hey, this is a tough time. There's some beautiful opportunities, of course, coming through with you know, the giant disruption brought by AI, et cetera, which is great, right? So we have market dislocation combined with new waves of tech. This usually yields amazing opportunities. So it's going to be a tale of two. There's two parallel stories here, which is, wow, what a great opportunity moment. By the way, it's not a one-year thing. It's probably a 20-year thing. And uh, continuing cleanup. In general, I think 2024 is going to be tough. Lots of cleanup. That's that's the word for 24, it sounds like. Well, it, you know, it's interesting what you say because this has not been a project for most of early stage Europe. Um, most firms are kind of 10 years old or less. Uh, they've existed in an environment where you just mark everything at cost and it goes up forever. So it's sort of, you know, this year has been the first moment where the early stage funds have had to think about, you know, they love, they love the NAV. They love the TVPI write-up. And they never were in the business of writing things down. You know, they, they weren't driving those valuations. So I think there's a view of, well, I'm not going to second guess the very strong U.S. investor that's come in with a great brand and a, and a higher price. But in fact, that's exactly what's needed, you're saying. And, and an honest dialogue with LPs, well, we don't believe it's worth that. Um, that's also tough because we haven't been, we in early stage, haven't been in the valuation game. So how much is your haircut? Twenty-five or fifty or, or 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 nothing or eighty or you know, that that's a tough one. Are you are you having to do much of that yourself? Look, I think we're being paid to assess risk on the way in, and to take views on valuation on the way in. I mean, who is better positioned than us to take a view on where the assets are today? Look, you have to fit within valuation rules and accounting rules, right? So this is not like you can do anything you want. But we've historically tried to mark assets down uh, quite proactively when we thought they were impaired. And this goes back to COVID. You know, we had a travel company in COVID. And systematically, what comes back from the LPs is, hey, we're not fully understanding why your mark is lower than, than competition. And I think we take them carefully. I mean, we're not trying to virtue signal by being conservative. But it creates, I think it creates a complex problem for LPs. And I think it really does a disservice to GPs that they don't, they just don't assess the situation clearly because, you know, at some point the chickens come home to roost. Uh, and again, it goes back to your relationship with the LPs. LPs are here to learn, to get good market signals and to have clarity on where their own assets are because you have your own clients. And so we, we perpetuating this lack of transparency down the chain. Uh, you know, a portfolio looks, some companies are doing great, Silverbird, et cetera, and some companies were definitely like, we're, there's one now where I think we're taking a markdown again ahead of, you know, slightly at the edge of what the valuation rules would say, but which we think is a reasonable thing to do. Um, so, yeah, look, it's an ongoing work of judgment. That's what we get paid to do. Like, who else is going to do it besides us? You know? That's the job. <laughs> That's yeah. the job. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, Fred, uh, look, thank you so much for sharing this uh, very personal story. It's really interesting to hear from somebody who's been at it for so long and who does think deeply. And I, I, I just got to thank you on behalf of, of us and the wider ecosystem for being public and, and helping us think about our own role and so on. Any, anything we missed about your own personal path, you know, this is a checkpoint. There will be more to come, but, you know, things you've learned, the nature of the work, um, what others, what you'd advise others to do on this personal knowing yourself journey? Yeah, for sure. So just maybe a few comments on like, you know, very often this type of work is grounded in, let's call it woo-woo and or spiritual bypassing or all sorts of things. So maybe there's a question of like why you'd want to do it at all. Um, so comment number one for me is if you think you're keeping a box that is a difficult moment in your past closed, you're probably actually living inside the box. You just don't realize it, right? In other words, what's known as shadow work, you know, understanding the parts of our, of our personality that are unhealed or unexplored are the things that drive you subconsciously. You just don't realize it. So that's one. Number two, for me, you know, the beauty of doing this thing is it's like, over time, you enhance the quality of every moment in the present. It's almost like your experience of life around you gets enriched. And I could say, well, I can feel the blood in my hands. Thank you, meditation. But more importantly, when my 16-year-old girl, Cleo, comes home, you know, I can tune into her emotional state almost the moment she walks through the door. And then I don't feel the need to fix her. I'm just going to hold space for her, for her to be sad or tired or whatever came up or joyful. And the quality of my relating with people has improved so dramatically. So I feel it was hard. You know, the personal work is tough, uh, but then you feel lighter, you feel more connected. And then I, I discussed with my, my closest friend that I've been on a similar path and we're like, what's the objective of this thing? It's like, well, could you get to a place where the moment of death is just another experience? It's just another part of the journey and how relaxing would that be? You know, today is my day. I've had a beautiful life. And, the, and that particular moment where I depart or I let go, it's just another, another experience. Like, you know, I don't know that I'm there, but it, it's something I aspire to, which is to consider every moment as they come. And finally, if you create more space to be surprised by your spouse, your kid, your coworker, you're in this space of openness and not knowing what's coming, um, it gets a lot richer. It's like you invite in a different kind of experience and a more beautiful kind of experience. And let's say it's with your wife and you say, I don't know you. You're not the same person you were last week. I'm just going to look at you with new eyes and see see how you show up. I mean, it's a wonderful place to be. So for me, I, I, I think that's why that's why the work or the path is important because you you just get a richer experience of the time that we have on earth. And it's been a been a beautiful gift thank you fred i really appreciate that i'm gonna try i hear you on the family side as well very very important and if you really know who you are um you're, you're gonna have to hold these solving the problems and being present and, and being aware so really appreciate that thank you so much for the conversation today i look forward to the future coaching program for young vcs of fred destin Thank I hope you. I'll, I'll be there. <laughs> so Gabby and I talked about this. We actually want to do that for next year, which is to start inviting emerging GPs or younger GPs. 
and share whatever it is that we can share. So it's actually in in it's in the works. As oh, a, so as I didn't a, invent this on the fly. This is a real thing. Yeah, yeah, totally. We are we are thinking about how to do it in a way that's uh, you know that's meaningful for people. So yeah, definitely one of the initiatives we're thinking about. Thank you so much, and uh, Andreas and David, thank you for getting us together today. Thank you, Joe. It's been a real pleasure. Have a good one. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This is a union of values. Values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings. New new beginnings. Let's start acting. Acting. Acting.